One of my favorite books, The Grapes of Wrath, has a scene that is uh, very memorable to me, at least. Uh, if you know the story of The Grapes of Wrath, it's about the, the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma in the 1920s when so many people were driven from their land and the banks kind of took uh, much of the land. It's also the turn of the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and the old way of life was kind of changing and those who were dependent on an old way of life, the agrarian way of life, were kind of driven away and they had to migrate and they were all going to, to California, all the, the poorest of the poor, those who had lost everything. And the story of Grapes of Wrath kind of follows this one family. And on their way on this... Uh, kind of terrible journey, they stop in these camps of other refugees, other migrants, and um, sometimes there's food to eat or shelter or running water, um, and anyway, they'll, they'll stay in these camps for a little while, and the children are always trying to look for something to do to pass the time because they're just, they're kind of homeless and there's nothing to do, and at one of these camps, there's um, like a soccer field, and they're playing ball, and there's only one ball, and there's a lot of kids, and they all have to take turns. And this one little girl who's a little stronger than the others, a little older, just comes in and ins- insists on not taking her turn or not waiting for her turn and so just jumps into the game. And all the other children are like, wait, 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 you're ruining the game. We're, we're in the middle. You have, you have to wait in line with everybody else. And she insists. And there's about to be a fight. And the old lady who's kind of watching these children, who's in charge of, of supervising them, just says something to the effect of, remember what I told you. And then... As soon as she says this, all of the children, except this one little girl, just stop playing. They just leave the field and stand on the sidelines. And this one little girl is left all by herself with her ball. And she, for a while, tries to pretend like she's having fun and like it doesn't bother her that all the other children stop playing. And she pretends just because of her pride that she doesn't really care or that she's not really ashamed. But ultimately, she just walks away and starts crying. And then the children return to their game. And I always think of that scene when I uh, read this part of the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Or, um, you know, if somebody presses you into service for one mile, go two miles. If someone tries to sue you for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. This kind of um, end around of the game of kind of human conflict. Jesus is, in a certain way, this turn the other cheek, we can kind of understand it as like, just be a doormat for people, don't really fight back when somebody's being a bully. Um, but the genius of it is it's really practically useful. If you just refuse to play the game that bullies or persecutors or mean people play, then you, you undermine the whole thing. Like As soon as you put your hands up to fight, the fight escalates and you're, you're playing on their terms. But the moment you just love in return to someone hating you or you, you give generously to someone stealing from you, you undermine the whole game of sin. But it's much more than just this prudential maxim or some piece of practical advice, although it is that. It's very useful advice. It also gets to the very heart of what it means to be Christian, what it means to be a disciple of Christ, to love your enemies. In a certain way, it's the hardest thing or least practiced aspect of Christianity is this kind of mercy, forgiveness, perfect love, how God lets the sun fall on the just and the unjust, the indiscriminate, infinite love of God that we're meant to reflect, we see, like on the cross, Jesus being nailed to the cross by us, says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's doing what he tells us to do. 
Pray for those who persecute you. We see it in Jesus, and it's like the most confounding thing. How could you love us when we're doing this to you? The depth of the love of the Sacred Heart of Jesus is, is immeasurable. Which is why at the end of this reading, Jesus says something also confounding. Be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Because nobody, no one of us is perfect. I used to think that people who said, I'm a perfectionist, was actually kind of like a humble brag. You know, somebody trying to, trying to be humble, but what they're actually saying is that I'm so good that I'm almost perfect. Like, I demand perfection. I'm the kind of person that's like, I know I'm kind of hard to deal with because I kind of demand perfection. I'm a, I'm a really perfect person. But perfectionism is not a humble brag. It's, it's something really bad, actually. It's kind of childish. Perfectionism is like, if I'm not perfect, then it's worthless. If I messed up, then I'm just giving up. You know, like in Lent, Lent is coming up on Wednesday. Have you ever given up something or said you were going to give up something? And then like three days in, you give in or accidentally give in or you accidentally eat meat on a Friday and you're like, well, whatever. Or just you have a habitual sin and you kind of give in once and you're like, well, now I messed it up, so I might as well give in a bunch of times. Like that's just childish. It's adolescent. It's not grown up. Perfectionism is that. It's kind of like I also was joking with some friends the other day about golf. If you've ever played golf, or it works with any sport. When an amateur uh, messes up and they get all mad at themselves, but you're like, you're actually really bad at this sport, and the fact that you ever hit a good shot, you know, the fact that you ever make a three-pointer is kind of lucky. And that's when, those are the times you should be like, wow, that was extraordinary. Thank God. Not every time you hit a bad shot, which is the other 99%, you're like, oh, what's wrong with me? It's not realistic. And so to expect to just immediately get the Christian thing, to have our love be perfect the way God's love is perfect, it's silly. So what is Christ actually saying? I think something like, if your love isn't perfect yet, that makes sense. But don't stop. Keep going. Keep following me. Keep carrying your cross. That's why we do Lent every single year. We never arrive until we're on the other side of death when we've totally conformed ourselves to Christ crucified and we rise from the dead and see him face to face and our heart is free of all these burdens of egoism, narcissism, selfishness, perfectionism. We can just enter totally into the love of God to return the love we've received from him. Every year we're going to need to work on something, to let God in ever more. And it can be surprising how it works. I remember I heard a story once of... um, of a man whose daughter was uh, raped and murdered in her house. She lived by herself in, in a rougher part of town, and she was, uh, I think she was a teacher or some kind of helping profession. She was one of these great people that didn't deserve it, right? Nobody deserves it, but like this kind of saintly person, and it was his only daughter, and, and uh, it was such a confusing, tragic thing. It made no sense to him. And this person, they caught him, and he was in prison. And for years, he struggled to forgive the guy. He didn't even really know who he was. He knew his name. He was there at his, at his trial. But uh, he was a Christian, and he, he, it, it bothered him that he had this rancor, this grudge, this unforgiveness in his heart. So he started to write letters to the guy. At first, just to say, like, why did you do this? You know, I just want you to know I'm a Christian, and I I know I'm obliged to forgive you, but I have a really, I'm having a really hard time just to kind of open the dialogue. And that took courage in itself. 
And slowly over months and years, these guys built a correspondence. And um, the man kind of confessed all of the struggles that he'd gone through in his life and how, his upbringing and how abusive his mother was and um, had lost a little brother to some, something pretty tragic. And I won't go into the whole story, but um, at some point, the guy looks down at his feet and he's heading out to the post office to bring this Christmas present that he has wrapped at the front door to the post office to send to the man who killed his daughter. And he's like, how did I get to this point? But when you listen to this whole story, you realize it it all makes sense. The Spirit of God, which reconciles us, that takes away the sins of the world, is in us. This is what St. Paul uh, is saying in the second reading. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells within you? Can you hear that question addressed to you today? I think as Catholics, we often talk about God the Father and God the Son. The Father loves us, loved the world so much he sent his only Son. Jesus loves us so much that he died on the cross for us. But imagine the Spirit of God is in you. That love that loves the world that much, that loves you that much, is alive in you. Yeah, you're not perfect yet. None of us are. But with that Spirit at work in your life, if you allow it to grow and you don't just give up or demand that you want perfection now, You can love the way Jesus loves. You can love the way God loves. As we enter into Lent this next week, I just invite you to contemplate that. Ask God, where are you wanting um, me to open the door to your spirit? Where are the dark corners of my heart that I've hid from you or or the places where I've given up because it's too hard? I I haven't reached perfection yet and I, I just can't handle that in myself. To allow that perfect love, that perfect love of God, the Spirit, of which you're the temple, to penetrate that and to bring that to life.